All right. Well, good morning, guys. We are finishing a series this morning that we started now three weeks ago that we've been calling Money Talks. And if you're a guest with us this morning, thanks so much for being here. And just to kind of catch you up to speed on what we're talking about, basically what we've been saying is we've been saying that, man, money is one of those topics that is so central and so prevalent in our culture, as you can kind of tell from the video that we just watched. And yet, for whatever reason, even though money is sort of a focal point of our society, we said that when you tend to bring up the topic of money in a setting like this, like at a church, that oftentimes there's a little bit of a stigma that comes with that, right? It's kind of a taboo issue. And so even if you're a person today who's maybe investigating Jesus and you're not real sure what you think about the whole Bible thing and the whole God thing, my guess is when you hear that we're talking about money and we're talking about it in church, you're like, oh, that makes sense. You know, the church and money, they're always talking about money. And so for whatever reason, this can be sort of a taboo topic to talk about in a church setting, even though it's so prevalent in our culture. And so we know that, we understand that. And the reason that we're doing this series then is because we've been saying, even though that's true, even though we know this is sort of a taboo thing to do, talk about money in church, when you look at, um, at, for many, many, many people in our culture, when you look at the source of some of our greatest anxiety, of some of our greatest fear, of some of our greatest relational tension, for many of us at the center of, of that kind of that anxiety and tension, for many of us is the topic of money. And so, for example, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we said the number one thing that married couples fight about in America today at the very, very top of that list is financial issues. So we said there's relational tension that that many people and many of us in this room experience because of money issues. We said for many, many, many people, when you look at the source of anxiety, some of the source of your greatest concern at the top of the list of the things that you probably lay in bed at night and worry about from time to time, it has to do with money, right? It has to do with money. And so because of that, we said that, man, this is such a prominent issue. It's such a prevalent issue. And there's so much tension around this issue. There's so much anxiety and there's so much worry and there's just so much that comes with it. We said that it's no wonder then, it's no wonder that the Bible talks about money so much. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Bible talks about money so much. It is hard to emphasize exactly how much it talks about. In fact, Jesus himself, a couple weeks ago we talked about this. We said Jesus talked about money, some commentators point out, more than heaven and hell combined. Jesus was always talking about money. Jesus gave a bunch of parables, these stories, to make spiritual illustrations. In the Bible, we see that Jesus, over about a third of those parables that Jesus gave, were about money. And so Jesus is always talking about money. Now, why is that? And and this is what we said in this series, if you're just joining us, is we said the reason that Jesus talked about money so much, he talked about it so frequently, is because Jesus understood something about money. And what he understood was something so profound. And basically it was this, is that Jesus understood That money is not about money. Money actually is an indicator of something much deeper that's happening in the human heart. If you want to know your values, if you want to know your priorities, if you want to know what your heart is, Jesus said the language of of your heart is your money, that our money talks. And so in this series and what we've been doing is we've been saying that, man, we want to try to find the financial freedom that God wants for us. And what you're going to see in the Bible is that God wants for every single person in this room, God wants us to be financially free. And when I say that, by the way, I know that many times we interpret financial freedom in our culture as I have so much money that I don't have to worry about things. And while that might be nice, that's not the financial freedom that God is talking about in the Bible. The financial freedom that God desires for us is actually much more powerful and much deeper than that. And that's this. God wants us to be free from the anxiety and the worry and the identity and the security and the power 
that our heart oftentimes gets entangled with as it relates to the topic of money. And so because of that, in the series, we've been looking at these different principles, these profound principles that Jesus gave us as it related, relates to money. And so I just encourage you, by the way, that if you've missed the last two conversations that we had in this series, you're going to want to go check those out. That's very foundational to what we're talking about today. And, uh, and we see just some really, really profound things that Jesus told us about money to help us lead to the financial freedom that God desires for us. But today, as we finish this series, I want to look at just one last principle that Jesus gives us in the Bible as it relates to our money. And, and in my opinion, in this whole series, this one is by far the most fun. Uh, this is just an awesome, awesome principle that Jesus is going to give us, um, and we're going to see that here today. And man, you're talking about financial freedom. This is going to bring financial freedom to a whole new level if we can get a hold of this principle that Jesus is about to show us today. All right, so I want to show you this awesome principle, and I want to show it to you by way of parable that Jesus gives in the book of Luke chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me and uh, go ahead and turn to Luke 16. And we are going to look at, which is sometimes called by commentators, the most difficult of all parables. A very, very interesting parable with a very strange conclusion that Jesus is going to give us to show us this incredible principle as it relates to our money. All right, so Luke 16, go ahead and get there. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem at all. We should have some out there for you. You can turn to page 730 in those, uh, in those black Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. Go ahead and grab those. Let me just also say, if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, if you just flat out don't have one, please just take one of ours, okay? We want, we want to give that to you as a gift. Thanks for being a guest, and we think it's important you have a Bible, so you can take that, write your name in it, and uh, you can take that out of here. The security team will not tackle you if you do that, and so you can, you can have a Bible, all right? Or if you want to, you can also uh, download the Grace Church app. We have an app, and you can um, access the Bible that way as well. So however you want to get there, Luke chapter 16. Now again, we're going to see what some commentators call the most difficult parable that Jesus gave, and you're going to see why in a second, all right? And this, this parable is going to be very, very interesting, and it's going to end really strange. Really, really, really strange. So let's dig into it. We're going to start up in verse 1. Here we go. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man, this is verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in, and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. Okay, so let's just pause there for a minute. Let me kind of explain what's going on. So the Bible tells us Jesus is giving a parable. Now you notice the parable that Jesus is giving, which by the way, a parable would just be a story. Jesus would oftentimes tell stories to try to illuminate spiritual realities. So he's given a parable. Notice who he tells the parable to. It's to his disciples. That's the audience, okay? So his disciples, by the way, what that means, these are the guys who, who were Christians. They were the ones who followed Jesus. And so listen, I know that not everyone in this room follows Jesus or would say that you are a Christian. But for those of us who do follow Jesus and would say that we're Christians, this parable has direct application to us, all right? And so let's, let's check it out. He says um, that, that, he, that there was a rich man who was a manager who was accused of wasting his possessions. The Bible tells us there was a rich man, a really, really rich guy, so rich, in fact, that he had the ability to hire a manager to oversee all of his money and all of his possessions. So he had an estate manager, right? The Bible tells us that this very, very wealthy man who had this estate manager one day started to catch wind that this guy was mismanaging his money. So he heard, got, I don't know how he heard through the grapevine, maybe some rumors, this guy's doing a bad job with your stuff, this guy's doing a bad job with your money, keeps hearing these reports. So he does what any good boss is going to do, right? He goes to his manager. He says, what is this I'm hearing about you doing a bad job? And he does an investigation apparently, finds out that it is true. This guy's been mismanaging his money. And so what does he do? What any good boss does, he says, you're fired. 
You pack up your desk, close out your accounts, you're done. Now, now here's something that's really fascinating that I want you to see in this parable. The Bible says that this manager was fired. It's certain, right? He has let go of his job. However, there's a temporary period of time. There's this little tiny window of opportunity that this man has his job for a very short period of time. So he says to him, listen, you're, you're fired. It's guaranteed. But before you go, close out your accounts, pack up your stuff because we're done. Now that's important to the parable because this guy has this temporary small little opportunity, right? And so what does he do with that opportunity? Well, check it out. Look at the next verse, verse three. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Okay, so let's pause there again. So this guy has a little dialogue with himself, a little bit of a crisis, right? Finds out he's gonna lose his job, so he kind of has this emergency meeting with himself. And he's like, man, you know, self, what are we gonna do about this? You know, he's like, well, let's, let's go through the options. He's like, I guess I could go dig. I could go work in agriculture. I could go to do some construction work. And then he's like, no, that's out. I'm too weak for that. I, I'm not strong enough for that. I went to business school, right? I'm a desk jockey. I'm doughy. And so I can't, can't go and do that. He's like, so I'm not gonna dig. And then the Bible says, he's like, and I'm too ashamed to beg. He's like, I can't go panhandle because, I mean, think about it. This guy worked in a very prestigious job at this time, worked for a very wealthy man, so he had a reputation. So he's like, I'm too ashamed to do that. So he's going through his options. All of a sudden, he has this, like, eureka moment. He starts to hatch his scheme. And notice what he says. And I want you to notice the wording of this, by the way, because this is really significant. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, because I'm going to lose my job, guaranteed, it's going to happen. He says, I know what I'll do so that people will welcome me into their houses. Now that is a really, really important little phrase. In fact, if you're taking notes, I want you just to highlight that because that's going to be really, really, really important later to helping us understand the meaning of this parable. All right. So that little phrase, he says, I know what I'm going to do now in this temporary little season. I know my job is going to end. I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do here so that I can leverage and secure myself something for later when my job is gone. Secure house for myself to be welcomed into homes later. So what's his plan? Well, he devises his plan and he starts executing it in the next verse. Take a look at verse five. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. All right, so check it out. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, here's his plan. So he starts to go to work. He calls in his master's debtors, which by the way, would be the people that owed, G, that owed his master money. So he calls in the first guy. He's like, how much, hey, 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 how much do you owe? And he's like, I owe 900 gallons of olive oil. Now, I just want you to understand from a sense of scale, that is not chump change by any stretch of the imagination. That was a massive amount of money. Now, just to give you some sense of scale, 100 gallons of olive oil back in this time would have taken 150 olive trees to produce. So 900 gallons of olive oil, you do the math on that, that's nearly 1,400 olive trees. That kind of wealth would be equivalent to three years worth of wages back in this time. So this guy owes a substantial amount of money, right? And so this master or this uh, manager sits down. He says, how much do you owe my master? He says, I owe him like three years worth of wages, man. I, I'm like seriously in the hole. He says, all right, well, you know what? Sit down quick, man. We got a great deal today. We're slashing prices all over the place, man. 50% off deal, make it 450, right? 450 today, special deal just for you. And the guy sits down, he cuts up. Now, I'm sure you guys probably see what's going on. Here's his plan. His plan is 
that he's going to try to leverage this situation that he's in right now to procure for himself a favor in the future. This culture, not unlike our culture, but even more so back in this time, was very sensitive to favors that you owed people. So if someone did did you a solid, um, in the back of your mind, you would think to yourself, I owe that person, right? There's a sense of indebtedness. And so this guy is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut these guys, these awesome deals. So that way, when I lose my job, they're going to owe me a favor. And so he would have sat down with this guy. But how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. All right, sit down quick, man. Half off deal, slashing prices. Make it 50% off, 450 gallons instead. And the guy would have said, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. Thank you. If there's anything I can do for you in the future, please let me know. And he probably would have said, well, I will. In fact, you might hear from me tomorrow, right? As a matter of fact. So the Bible says he does that. Then he goes to the next guy. Look, the same thing happens in the next verse. Down in verse 7. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? He said, I owe a thousand bushels of wheat. Now, I won't get into details. That is significantly more. About 10 years worth of wages is what that would have been worth. He says, I owe about a thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, sit down, he said, take your bill, make it 800. Not a 50% discount, 20% off for you today. 20% off, make it 800. Now again, that guy would have said, oh my gosh, that was so nice of you. I can't believe you did that. If you ever need anything in the future, please don't hesitate to call. And he probably thought, I will. As a matter of fact, I'll probably call you tomorrow, right? Now, now here's the thing. I imagine Jesus has given this this, uh, parable to his disciples. Now remember, the disciples were the followers of Jesus. These were the, the guys who believed in the Bible. They believed in the Ten Commandments. These were the guys who were advocates for honesty and hard work. These were the guys who, who knew that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't try to uh, manipulate people or take advantage of them. They would have believed that. And so you can imagine that as they heard this parable, they probably thought to themselves, man, that guy, he, I mean, sure, that was creative and that was, that was a really clever scheme. But seriously, man, how dishonest. What a conniving, slippery, sneaky guy he is. And, 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 and they're thinking, they're probably thinking to themselves, Jesus doesn't want us to be anything like that, right? And that's why they would have been so surprised at the twist ending that Jesus gives in verse 8. Look at the first part of verse 8. This is crazy. Jesus says in the parable, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted so shrewdly. And so Jesus gives this, 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 this conclusion to the parable that would have been seriously shocking to Jesus' disciples. This whole time he's telling the story, they're probably all like, that guy, is a, we don't like that guy. He's dishonest, he's sneaky, he's criminal. He's a criminal, right? Surely Jesus doesn't want us to be like that. And Jesus concludes and he says, listen, so the master, yeah, he commended him. He commended the dishonest manager for acting so shrewdly. And this creates a crisis, not only for the listeners, but also for us too. As a matter of fact, this is why this is oftentimes called the most difficult parable that Jesus gave, because a lot of commentators look at it and say, it looks as if Jesus is commending dishonesty. It looks as if Jesus is, is commending this type of behavior of being sneaky and being, and, 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 you know, conniving and those type of things. Now, now, is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus commending dishonesty? Well, of course not, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's basic stuff. That's the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is not commending dishonesty. The point is very clear here. Notice what he's commending. It says he commended him because he had acted shrewdly. What's being commended in this parable, the point that Jesus is trying to make, is this guy had acted shrewdly. Now, that's a fascinating word, isn't it? Shrewd. 
I don't think that's a word that we use oftentimes in our, in our you know, modern-day vernacular. I don't know if shrewd is a word that we use. What is shrewd? Well, I'll, I'll give you some, some, uh, some ideas of what it means. When you pull it back in the Greek, what the word shrewd literally means, some of you have translations, it says he acted wisely. Some of your translations say that. Shrewd literally means sensible, prudent, intelligent, discreet, right? That's the idea. It's creative. It's innovative. Here's what it is. Think MacGyver, all right? That's shrewd. That's what it means to be shrewd. MacGyver could be in any situation, no matter how bleak it is. And he could have limited resources, no matter how crude they were, right? He's got like a straw wrapper and a rubber band. And he's going to somehow figure out a way, a creative, innovative, ingenious way to get himself out of that situation with those limited resources, right? That... That shrewdness, that is what Jesus is talking about. It's this ability to exercise mental energy and invest creativity and innovation and ingenuity to, to, to guide yourself to a projected outcome. That's what shrewdness is. And so Jesus says, this guy, this, this manager, um, he was praised by his master, not for his dishonesty, but because my goodness, he was so shrewd. How creative, how in it, he, he probably looked at that guy and thought to himself, Man, you got the best of me, but I kind of hand it to you. That was brilliant. That was ingenious, what you just did to me right there. That was criminal minds can be some of the most creative minds out there, is what he's saying here. And that's what he's commending. Now, I know that Jesus is not commending dishonesty. He's commending a shrewdness, not only because he says so there, but because of the point that he makes after the parable is finished. Look at the second part of verse 8. Check out the second part. He says, for, which by the way, that's a transitionary word, for, Basically, Jesus is now saying, the parable is finished, the story is done, and now I'm going to give you the main point of the story. That's what the for is for. So he says, for the people of this world are more shrewd, there's our word again, and dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Now, what in the world is that talking about? The people of this world are more shrewd than the people of light. Well, that, basically, what that means is Jesus is saying that the people of this world, that is, by the way, all of us, we are human beings who live in this world, he says, are more shrewd in dealing with the things of this world than the people of light. The people of light, by the way, is referring to those who followed Jesus, the disciples, to Christians, right? And, and what Jesus is pointing out, that, that might sound a little mystical to you, but what Jesus is pointing out is something that I think we all already know and is fairly obvious, and that's this, that we humans, when it comes to something that we really want in this world, in this life, we will get real creative really fast, to, know, to, to come up with innovative, creative strategies to get it. Isn't that true? All of us, every single one of us, is creative and is innovative and is shrewd towards something. Now, you think about, you think about the business world for, for a minute. In our culture today, there is such remarkable ingenuity and creativity that is invested in the advancement of businesses in our culture today. It's unreal. I mean, you read some of these books, you read some of these biographies about some of these entrepreneurs, and you're like, that is genius, brilliant. Some of you in this room, I, I've talked to some of you. I am so impressed with some of, your, your, some of you guys, some of you are business savvy. Some of you are business owners, or you, you excel in your field right now. And when I talk to you and you tell me about the way that you interact with your business, I am like, you are a genius, you're brilliant. Some of you have such unbelievable entrepreneurial skills and you invest such an amazing amount of innovation and creativity and thoughtfulness and shrewdness into how to become the best at what it is that you do, which is awesome. Honestly, there's times I talk to some of you and I'm like, oh my gosh, you are so 
smart. You are so creative. Some of you are this way, maybe not in business. Some of you are this way financially. I've talked to some of you before, and I'm telling you, when you talk to me about your investment strategies and how you invest money in this thing and then you put it over here and you have these and then you have these real estate investments over here and you leverage those and you move your money here to here because there's this whole creative like web and your skin and I'm just like you're brilliant you are so creative you are so innovative all of us are creative and innovative towards something some of you are this way musically some of you are this way creatively artistically right all of us are this way think about think about back when you were, when you first started dating and, and for some of you, you're in this phase right now. Isn't it true that when you met that person that you really liked and you wanted to gain their attention, you wanted to gain their interest, you got real creative real quick, didn't you? It's true. Some of you guys are like this right now. If you, maybe you met that girl and, and you're like, I, I really like her and I want to win her heart. And isn't it true? You will go out of your way to do things you've never done before and you would never, ever do again to try to win the attention of that person. You're going to find yourself all of a sudden wearing clothes that you didn't wear before. You're going to start spraying yourself with stuff to make you smell better than you do, right? And you're going to go out of your way spending three days to try to strategically figure out how can I accidentally run into that person, right? Looking the right way and smelling the right way, right? And so all of a sudden you you find yourself in that place and you run into that person, that person that you like, and you're like, oh, I didn't think I was going to see you here. I just accidentally fell into these clothes and smelled this way and been planning this for three days. I had no idea I was going to see you. It's so creative, right? For some of you girls right now, you think about it, you, you meet that guy and you, wanna, and you wanna get his attention. Oh my goodness, you guys can be so creative, so innovative in ways to win his attention, right? The clothes you wear, the time you spend in front of the mirror, the things you do, oops, I accidentally spilled my milk. <laughs> Whatever, you know, it's just so smart. And then you have a conversation with the guy and then after the conversation, you go to your friends and you have a one hour debrief meeting right? Like a coach replaying the tapes after a game. You're like analyzing every move. He said this, and then I said this. What does that mean, right? So smart, so shrewd, so creative. I remember when I first met my wife, Jess, we actually met at the college ministry. So quick plug, if you want to get involved in the college ministry, I met my wife there. I'm just saying. So I met Jess, and I remember when she walked in to the college ministry for the first time, when I saw her, I was just like overwhelmed. It was crazy. You know, there's wind blowing uh, in her hair and, um, you know, that sting song, every breath you take, that was playing. Some of those details might not be accurate, but she walked in the room and, um, you know what my first thought was? My first thought was I have to figure out a way. I have to come up with a way to somehow convince her that I'm not an idiot and that, and that we should go on a date. I got to figure out how to do that. I felt like a, like a, like an army general trying to strategize a battle plan. You know, I go into like a, a war room. There's like maps and there's like, you know, there's like a, a, a chalkboard. I'm like running algorithms. How can I figure out how to try to win her heart? So creative, so shrewd. And here's, here's all Jesus is saying. He's just saying this. He's saying the people of this world, you and I, when we really want something, isn't this true? When we really want something in this life, we will get real creative real fast. We will practice immense ingenuity to try to come up with a way to get that. We're all very, very creative, very shrewd people. And so Jesus says, listen, this is his challenge. He says, the people of this world are more shrewd, are more creative, exercise more innovation as it relates to the things of this world than do Christians as it relates to the things that are eternal. 
Now, what Jesus is saying, by the way, is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you shouldn't invest ingenuity and shrewdness into your business and into your, look, the world needs, I think Christians ought to be the best business people. They ought to be the best financial planners. They ought to be the best artists and the best musicians with integrity. I think the world needs that, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, how much more should those who follow Jesus invest in things that are eternal? See, that's why Jesus is going to go on in verse 9. And he's going to say this, I tell you, this is Jesus' conclusion after his parable, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now that's a fascinating thing. I want to draw your attention to two things in there. Notice he says, use worldly wealth. All right. Now worldly wealth, by the way, it means more than just your money. It's talking about your money. It's including your money. It means more than that. The, the literal translation, some of you have translations. It says unrighteous mammon, which is totally an outdated phrase. I don't know anyone who says that anymore, outright, uh, unrighteous mammon. It's an outdated phrase. But what it means is it means all of your stuff. That's what it means. It means your house. It means your car. It means your possessions. It means your money. Okay? All of those things would be accumulated in worldly wealth. So he says to, to his disciples, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends. For yourself, so that when it's gone, now here's the key, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, you guys remember earlier, I pointed out that verse when, he, when in verse 4, when the guy said, um, the manager said, I, I, I'm going to lose my job. And so I, now I need to figure out a way that I'll be welcomed into houses when my job is gone. That is the exact same verbiage that's used here. And so the parallel that Jesus is trying to draw is this, that in the same way that that dishonest manager the same way that he executed amazing shrewdness in the temporary time that he had to secure for himself something in the future. So we who follow Jesus need to understand that, listen, as certain as that man's job was going to end, our life on this earth will end too. This is a temporary season. This, the Bible says that this time in our life is a breath, it's a vapor, it's here and it's gone. Look, there's an expiration date on this life. However, what Jesus is saying is, you can use this time to procure for yourself rewards and treasures and something that will last up into eternal dwellings. He says, build friendships, use your stuff, use your money, use everything to build friendships so that, what he says, so that you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In other words, what he's saying is you can actually, and you can use your stuff to invest in people today in such a way that it will affect their eternal outcome. You can use this temporary period to invest in something that will last forever. And what Jesus is basically saying is this. He's saying, listen, you guys, our money is a tool. Jesus is saying, your money, your stuff, your possessions, it's a tool. It's a tool. It's not a goal, right? The goal isn't accumulate as much as you, you, you can have and have as much. That's not it. Jesus says, no, it's a tool. Use it. Leverage it. Do every, this, and you want to talk about financial freedom? Here's financial freedom as God defines it. He says, you are free to use your stuff and your money to do anything you want, short of sin, to help win people, to build friends that might last into eternal things. You are free to do that. Anything short of sin. Use all your creativity. Use all your ingenuity. Use all of your innovation and apply it to, how can I use my stuff, my car, my house, my money, how can I leverage these things with creativity and shrewdness in such a way that I can win friends for myself so that it might last into eternal dwellings? He says, look, your money is a tool. Your stuff is a tool. And he's telling his disciples, you need to think about it that way. Look at it that way. Not only that, though, not only that, Jesus says, not only is your money a tool, but he's also going to say, listen to this, 
your money is also a test. For those of us who follow Jesus, our money, according to scripture, and I know not everyone follows Jesus, but for those of us who do, our money is a test. That's what the Bible says. Check out verse 10. Jesus says this is great. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted, this is peculiar what he says here, very, very interesting. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So Jesus, real basically there, just says what we already know. If you can't be trusted with a little bit, then who's going to give you more? And if you can't be trusted with, 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 with uh, if you can't be honest with a little bit, who's going to put you in charge of more things? And then Jesus says something that's just so peculiar. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. So, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who can trust you with, now look at this little phrase, this is crazy, true riches. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? Now, this is a fascinating thing Jesus says here. I want you to notice he's contrasting two different, um, two different uh, uh, objects here, worldly wealth and true riches. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about what those mean. If you pull that back in the Greek language, worldly wealth, like I said, that's unrighteous mammon in some of your translations, which is just an outdated way of saying your stuff. It literally means this. The reason it's called unrighteous mammon or worldly wealth is it means not true, deceitful, or fraudulent. That's what it means. And true riches in the original language means real, opposite of what's fictitious, not counterfeit, not imaginary, not simulated or pretended. So what's Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. This is real simple. He says, listen, your stuff, if you're a follower of Jesus, your money, your stuff, it's all play money. It's fake. It's not the real thing, right? There are, he says, but there are true riches. There's the real thing. And to which we're saying, what are those true riches? What are those? And you know what I, you know what I think they are? I don't know. I honestly don't know what Jesus means by true riches, but I can't tell you this much. I really want to find out because the Bible is always talking about true riches. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount at one point, some of you might remember, he says to, to, um, to those listening to him, he says, listen, don't amass for yourself treasures on this earth where like there's moth and there's rust and the things are gonna decay and there's thieves and things can be stolen. He says, don't store up for yourself treasures here on this earth. He says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. He's always talking about this stuff. Treasures in heaven, true riches. In one place, he says, don't put your hope in money, which is so unreliable. He says, instead, give yourself to real life. Life that is real life is what Jesus says. Now, what's he talking about? True riches. What's he talking about? Eternal inheritance. I don't know exactly what he means, but I do want to find out. What Jesus is saying is when you use the play money that we have here, when we use the temporary stuff that we have here, we can actually leverage that in such a way that it can reap for us eternal rewards, true riches that God has in store for us. It's interesting when I think about this idea of leveraging worldly wealth to, to amass for myself true riches in heaven, when I think about that, an illustration that comes to my mind, it's actually an illustration I used several years ago and um, it was so helpful to me personally and I talked to a few people and they said it was helpful for them. So I thought I'd share it with you because I thought it was a helpful illustration. One of the things that I think about, though, um, is I think a little bit about um, going to Dave and Buster's. Now, I don't know if you guys, 
have ever been to Dave and Buster's, I'd probably go there about once a year for some, someone's bachelor party. Inevitably, we're going to go to Dave and Buster's. If you've never been to Dave and Buster's, it basically is the adult version of Chuck E. Cheese. That's what it is, right? There's video games, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff. You can have a good time. And one of the things that Dave and Buster's has, much like Chuck E. Cheese has, is they have, um, they have those tickets, you know what I mean? They look like raffle tickets that you can win. And at the end of the night, you can get a prize. They kind of look like this. I actually brought one with me. This is not a Dave and Buster's ticket, but they look like this. And you know what I mean? You guys can amass these. And then after you get enough, you go, you go to the prize room. And when you go into the prize room, you can get like a Chinese finger trap for like 5,000 tickets or something obnoxious like that. And, and I don't know if you guys have ever gotten into this before, but, but when you get into the ticket thing, when you're in the game room, and you start getting into it, it can be very consuming, right? You start to play skee-ball, and you play basketball, and you try to win tickets, and it can be so consuming that you start looking at things differently in the game room. All of a sudden, you start looking at other people differently, right? Like, you see the guy that's got, like, buckets of tickets, and that guy is now the most powerful man in the world, right? You're like, that guy, man, he's like, he's like, the boss here, he owns the place, right? And then you see like the person in the corner who has like five tickets, you're like, <laughs> come, talk, come talk to me when you get more tickets, you know? And, and it becomes a big deal. But here's the thing, it can be so consuming, but you know, the moment you step out of that game room and you get out of Dave and Buster's and you get in the parking lot, you realize how stupid the whole thing is. You're like, this is so dumb. These tickets are worth nothing. They only matter in the game room right? They make no difference in real life. I can't go to the grocery store and try to buy milk with this. Ain't going to do it, right? This is pretty much good for fire kindling. That's about all this is worth outside of the game room, right? And, and here's what Jesus is saying, guys. Here's what he's saying. It's like, look, your money, your stuff, your possessions, this is all it is. It's not the real thing. Because listen, the moment you exit the game room, and all of us will, One day, it's guaranteed, we're all going to leave the game room. We're going to step out of the parking lot of this life, and we're going to find out that there is eternity at stake. And all of a sudden, we're going to realize that this stuff doesn't mean anything. It's play stuff, man. It's counterfeit, right? Now, here's what Jesus is saying. This is so good. Jesus says, but, but, you can use this, though. You can use this in the game room to make a difference in somebody's life that will outlast the game room. You can leverage this in such a way that it's going to somehow endure outside of that game room. So, so back to Dave and Buster's, right? If I'm at Dave and Buster's and I win in these tickets, I can use these tickets to go and cash in a prize, you know, use 10,000 of them to buy a coffee cup, and I can give that coffee cup to you, and we can develop a friendship, and that friendship is going to outlast the game room. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Use your stuff. See, what Jesus is inviting us to in this passage, you guys, this is so good. He's telling us that I don't just want your hearts involved with your money, which we talked about that in the weeks to pass. He says, but listen, I want your mind too. Use your creativity. Use your ingenuity. You, can do, you are free to do anything short of sin, to use your stuff, to amass friends that can lead to things outside of the game room. I was, uh, I'll give you one example, one practical example of how I think this can look, and then we'll be done. But uh, an example that came to my mind as I was thinking about this idea uh, of this was actually a real-life example not too long ago with my wife, with Jessica. And I, I, I know she'll be mad at me for sharing this, but I think it's such a good example. It's worth sharing. So, um, so my wife and I, one of the things that we, we uh, share is we share an interest in, um, in being thrifty. It's sort of like a hobby for us. We just love getting a deal on stuff. It's awesome. And so Jess especially, even more than me, she's like a couponer. 
She's like the kind of person that will get a stack of coupons. She'll go into Target and spend like $80. And by the time she's done, they're giving her money. Like it's like that. It's unreal how she does it. And so both of us, just, we just like to be thrifty. And so we're notorious. We have no pride at all. If someone's throwing something away and we want it, we, will, we have no pride in asking the person, can we have that? Right? And I, I guarantee by this point, we have a reputation in our neighborhood. Like there's our pastor picking stuff out of the trash again. Right? It's just something that <laughs> happens. Well, anyway. We were in this situation one time where, uh, where we, were, we were with a friend and she was about to throw away these, these antique chairs. And Jess is like, those are really cute chairs. I really like those chairs. She's like, aren't those cute chairs? And I was like, I don't really know. I don't pay attention to chairs and I never use the word cute. So I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, yeah, these are really cute chairs. I said, well, does that mean you want me to put them in the van? Yes, can you put them? Okay, yeah. So I got, I got these chairs and I was like, what do you want to do with them? She's like, well, I have this vision. I want to put them on our front porch and I want to sand them down. I want to Pinterest the heck out of them. You know, put them up on the front porch and make it awesome. I'm like, that sounds good to me. I don't know. So we put the chairs on the, on the front porch. Well, anyway, uh, not too long after, a couple weeks after, um, Jess has an opportunity to meet uh, a neighbor of ours, someone who lives several houses down, but in the same neighborhood. We live in a kind of a cul-de-sac neighborhood. And so uh, there's a woman riding her bike past, and they started up a conversation. And, and so we're just excited to meet someone new. So Jess is talking to this lady. And I, in the, I guess in the, in the course of their, their conversation, I wasn't there, but the lady kept saying, I really like your chairs. Those are really awesome chairs. Jess was, oh, thanks. We got them for free. We pulled them out of the trash. You know? and, uh, and she's like, that's really cool. And she's like, yeah. And they kept talking. And she kept talking about how she liked the chairs. So cool. So later on that night, Jess and I were talking. She said, hey, I got a chance to meet someone new in the neighborhood. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Who did you mean? She told me about this woman that she met. She goes, she really liked those chairs. It's like, oh, that's cool. And she goes, you know, I think I'm going to give them to her. And I was like, well, why? You like those chairs, right? You know, why would you give them? She goes, I know. She goes, but they're just chairs. I was like, that's cool. It's like, that's awesome. So what do you want to do? She says, well, I want to take them. Let's go put them on her porch. And I'll write a note and we can like ding dong ditch, you know, run out of there. And, uh, <laughs> It's like, that's awesome. So we got the kids together. We got the chairs. We put the chairs on this lady's front porch. Jess wrote this note. The note basically said something to this effect. It said, we've been so blessed by God with so many things that we just want to be a blessing to you. You can have these chairs. And so she gave the chairs. We rang the doorbell. We ran out of there, you know. Felt like teenage high school students TPing someone. And, uh, and man, check this out. Like, like the next week, we got this letter with a care package from this woman. And I'm just going to read a part of it. This is what she wrote. She said, Jessica, What a nice surprise to find your chairs on our front porch. That was one of the nicest surprises that I had, underlined twice, in a long time. Here is the care package I gathered up for your boys. I hope it's okay with you. Come up and have the boys pet Molly anytime. She loves it. Molly's a dog, by the way. Be weird if she wasn't. (laughs) Since you're new to the neighborhood, here's my phone number, just in case you never know. We've been blessed in so many ways. Thank you, sweet lady. You are very very special. Here's something so cool. After that, every time we see this woman, our boys go and pet Molly. We talk with her and there's a friendship now. And and listen, here's all Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, don't accumulate your stuff. Don't hoard your stuff. Use your stuff. Use your money. Because look, it's just this anyway. This is all it is. It means nothing. It means only something in this game room, but you can leverage it in a way that you can, they, they outlast the game room. So be creative, be innovative. You can use anything, anything. You can even use a chair if you want to, to build friendships with other people. So here's my challenge to you. As you walk out today, I actually asked the ushers, and I, I did this one time in the past, but I'll do it again. 
on your way out, I asked the ushers just to give you one of these. It's a stupid little ticket. But what I would challenge you to do with this is that if you're a follower of Christ, just put this somewhere. Put this in your wallet next to your, your other play money. Uh, put, the, put this in your, in your purse. Put this in your checkbook. Put this somewhere and just let it serve as a reminder that every time you get that, your, your wallet out, every time you get your stuff, if, if, you're, if you're a person who's real particular about your house, put this next to the one thing that you're just like the most obsessed with. Right? Put it next to it. Just to remind you, this is all this is. And I can use this to outlast the game room. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your words to us this morning. God, I, I, I feel like this stuff is liberating, honestly, because money can have such a controlling constraint on our heart. It can control us. We can find so much security, so much identity, so much power in it that we want to hoard it. And God, you told us you want us to be free from all that. You want to set us free. And that means we're free to love. That means that we're free to use everything that you've given us to build friends, to amass for ourselves treasures in heaven. I know, God, for some of us, we're asking, how generous should I be? How much should I, should I, how serious should I take this? And I think the answer is simple. How much reward in heaven do we want? How much, do, how much true riches do we want to be entrusted with? Because there's a correlation between those things in your thinking. God, I thank you that not only did you command this of us, but you exemplified this, Jesus. The Bible says that you, who, who had all of the riches of heaven, emptied yourself and became poor for our sake that we might become rich. Jesus, you're the most generous of all. The gospel is a gospel of generosity. It's not a gospel of tight-fisted um, stinginess. That's not your gospel. The gospel is one of generosity. A God who used all of his wealth and all of his possessions and all of his resources, leveraged those things for the sake that we might have eternal gain. So Father, I pray that we be the same, that we'd have the same mind that you do, that we would enact the same principle that you've shown us. So help us to go and do likewise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.